Whether we're partial to sweet strawberry, loyal to orange marmalade, nostalgic with Concord grape, or adventurous with mango habanero, fruit spreads have topped our toast or made our desserts just a touch sweeter for many centuries. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lei. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm doing well. We're in the swing of summer and times are good. My strawberries are starting to get ripe and I'm thinking exciting thoughts about what I'm going to be doing with those. How are you? Good. That is, you know, I have to say one thing that I do miss is a garden when we're traveling, but we have some amazing farmer's markets that have some really awesome products. I have a big question for you. Do you have a favorite fruit spread? I do have a favorite fruit spread. My favorite is probably strawberry freezer jam. Oh, yeah. That stuff is so good. It is. I'm pretty partial to that, too. But I love me some orange marmalade. It was something that I always had in the house growing up. I actually asked my mom about it because I didn't know if it was something that was a carryover from her that we just picked up in the States or I've been wrong before about like, oh, it's traditional to have this, only to find out that it was like something (laughs) new to the family. But basically, she just, she really loved it. And so we always had it in the house. But, you know, I'm always so confused about what is the difference between the things that we put on our toast or whatever that we call fruit spreads. And I'm trying to use a very broad term because we do have a tendency to talk about jams and jellies and whatnot all in the same breath. But there's some difference to that. And I think that was a question that came to us from Ramona Gibson. What can you tell me about these treats and how they came to grace our table? You are absolutely right. It was a listener request. Ramona, thank you so much for asking us, what's the difference between jams, jellies, and marmalades? And here's a simple breakdown of the differences. Jam is made from a crushed or chopped fruit and cooked with sugar. The cooking process softens the fruit so that the resulting product is spreadable. Sometimes pectin is added, but often not. Now, jelly is clear and doesn't contain any pieces of fruit. Typically, the fruit is crushed and then it's cooked. The juice is then extracted by passing the mixture through either a jelly bag or cheesecloth. And then the juice is boiled with sugar and oftentimes pectin is added so that the gel sets. Marmalades have a clear base as well, but they have pieces of fruits in them. Generally, they're made with citrus, as you mentioned. Orange marmalade is a very popular marmalade. And they typically have kind of a sweet and sour and a little bit of bitter from the rind. I wanted to talk about a couple more preserves here, just for good measure. Now, preserves are made by cooking the whole fruit or sometimes bigger slices or halves of fruits. The fruit is either stored in its own juices, in a syrup, or in water. So think canned fruits, canned cherries. Now, curds are similar in preparation to preserves in that the fruit is cooked, but then it's pureed and combined with butter. And as Miranda, one of our listeners, says, 
It's too fine for everyday use and certainly not for peanut butter sandwiches. Fruit butters, which you would think contain butter, don't. These sweet spreads are not jellied. They actually rely on the pulp of the sweetened fruit cooked down to create that thick, dense mixture. So there isn't any pectin or gelatin that's included in those. Now, we can't talk about the differences in each of these sugared spreads without talking about the history of food preservation. For as long as humans have been hunting and gathering, we've made great efforts to preserve what we've harvested. Survival literally depended upon it. One of the earliest methods of preservation is, surprisingly, freezing food. In colder climates, food was stored in caves or pits that were packed with snow. Now, another preservation method was drying food. The food would be hung on racks to dry in the sun or by smoking it. We have evidence showing Middle Eastern and Asian cultures drying foods as early as 12,000 BCE. Another form of preservation was to use honey to encapsulate fruits. Because honey doesn't have any moisture content, it's perfect to protect delicate fruits like figs and dates from the ravages of air and oxygen. These delicacies date from around 6000 BCE. Now, in our episode 45 cookbooks, Guardians of Cuisine and Culture, Marcus Gavius Apicius made an appearance. He was the author of De Re Coconaria, which is the oldest surviving cookbook. There is some speculation that this cookbook may actually hold one of the first recipes for preserving fruit by heating it in honey and then packing it in jars. This was a delicacy that was served at the end of every meal and clearly for royals and the elite. It isn't until the 11th century, which corresponds to the Crusades, that we see the first mention of sugar. It's likely that it was brought back by soldiers and was described as a pleasant new spice. As we mentioned in so many of our other episodes, at this point in time, sugar really was a luxury afforded only by the elites and the royals. Here's some fun jam jelly lore that I stumbled upon. Joan of Arc is said to have eaten quince jam for courage before battle. Sailors and pirates would stockpile jam, which may have helped to ward off scurvy. Nostradamus's treatise on makeup and jam included recipes for cherry jam, quince jam, and pear preserves. Louis XIV of France was so fond of jam that he required it to be served at the finish of every meal, and the jams were served in ornate silver dishes, creating a magnificent display of his wealth. Here's where I want to jump over to the little corporal. Napoleon Bonaparte can be described as narcissistic, a tyrant, an enlightened leader, but you probably would never describe him as the forefather of jams, jellies, or marmalades. Now, if you listen to episode 29, our second installment of the Kitchen Technology series, we talked about the contribution of Napoleon's 1785 offer to provide a reward to anyone who could figure out how to preserve large quantities of food for his troops on the move, essentially fostering the invention of canning. As sugars became more affordable with the invention of canning, the development of pasteurization, as well as the industrialized trade routes, jams, jellies, and marmalades, began showing up on the tables of us common folk. 
That's fascinating. And, you know, I was reading up on jams and jellies in the Oxford Food Companion, and Alan Davidson said the same thing. Britain is given a lot of that credit for being the likely world leader in the industrial production of jam. I'm going to kind of use jam as maybe like a placeholder word for this entire array of fruit spread things. And because of that, it's subsequent place on the breakfast table. As we know, of course, jam is not limited to breakfast. Jam on toast is an acceptable snack in the afternoon when you're feeling peckish. Obviously, we like to put jam on our scones. And fruit spreads in general play a significant role in baking as a sweet layer in cakes, as a glaze in fruit tarts, as a filling in jam tarts, cookies, and donuts. And for those British baking fans out there, obviously, as a crucial layer in Bakewell tarts. Mm. Less common applications of fruit spreads that I've read about included spooning it over ice cream or actually even mixing jam into water to basically make a sort of cordial drink. Now, with much respect and love to Alan Davidson, may he rest in peace, the Oxford Companion to Food tends to be a little bit Anglo-centric. I think that we can appreciate that actually many countries have food traditions centered around this preservation of ripe and semi-ripe fruit using sugar and natural sweeteners. In the book, Alan Davidson reports that per capita consumption of fruit spreads at the end of the 19th century, this is just to illustrate how popular this really is on the table, at the end of the 19th century, per capita consumption was estimated at 10 pounds of jam per person just in Great Britain. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of jam. And this is the 1800s, right? End of the 1800s. 10 pounds of jam per person. Now, I did find a 2019 report of jam and jelly per capita consumption that now today ranks France as the number one consumer in the European Union. I could not find the stats for the U.S., with an average consumption of 19.4 pounds per person, followed by Austria at 13.8 pounds and Sweden at 11.5 pounds of jam per person. The taste for this sweet, yummy substance has obviously spread across Europe. We know that it's popular here in the United States. I'm sorry I don't have those statistics for you. But in the world, the top three countries producing fruit spreads are actually France, Germany, and Spain. I want to bring that up because obviously we know the United States was settled by people from all over the globe, definitely from Europe. We talk about that a lot. So we know that they brought those fruit spread recipes to the United States through the 18th and 19th centuries and beyond. And when these settlers got to the eastern shores, they found an incredibly fertile land. We're talking about strawberry, boysenberry, blackberry, blueberries, cherries, apples, oranges. To a certain extent, we've talked before about the production of key limes and oranges in Florida, and of course in California. We've got this bounty, this plethora of fresh, beautiful fruit that easily ripens in the summer, sometimes in spring, sometimes in autumn. As we've discussed at various intervals, especially in our annual pie episodes, cooks and homemakers had to be really creative and very productive when it came to figuring out how to preserve these fresh summer fruits. What I did find interesting was that there are quite a few companies that come to mind easily when we're talking about the commercially produced preserves and fruit spreads. And so I kind of was a little bit curious about the origins of some of these companies that have come to prominence through the late 19th century, specifically from the production and sale of fruit spreads. 
One big one that comes to mind for me, Jam Smucker. Really super famous for the strawberry jam. That's what I always think of. Jam Smucker was founded in 1897 by Jerome Monroe Smucker. His empire started as a cider mill in Orville, Ohio, where his family produced cider and apple butter, speaking of those fruit butters, from Orville apple trees allegedly planted by the famous Johnny Appleseed in the early 19th century. And as the company grew, it made and sold a broad variety of jams and jellies, and by 1980, commanded 25% of the U.S. market for fruit spreads. I don't know that that's still true today. I couldn't actually find an updated statistic, but that's a pretty large market share. It's a big market share. The other company that came to mind for me was Welsh's, which came into existence in Vineland, New Jersey in 1869, where it was founded by teetotaler Thomas Bramwell Welsh and his son Charles Welsh. Their intention was to produce unfermented grape juice that could be served for communion instead of wine. Violand was actually an 1861 real estate development meant to create an alcohol-free utopian society surrounded by agriculture. During World War I, Welch has received a contract to supply grape-lade, or grape-lade, which is basically a grape jam, to the military. And in the 1960s, Welsh's was the major sponsor of the Flintstones cartoon show. For a long time, the company, I think still to this day, the company sells its grape jelly in glass jars featuring cartoon characters that could subsequently be used as a drinking glass. I remember these so clearly from my childhood. Do you, Lay? Do you remember them? Absolutely. And we would collect them. Yeah, different characters, and it was like a little bit of a scavenger hunt. And yeah. Yeah. Yep. The other company that tops lists of favorite fruit spreads is Polliner, which was founded by Max and Lena Polliner in Newark, New Jersey in 1898. Within a sea of competition, this company, ultimately under the leadership of their grandson, launched its all-fruit spread in 1986, accompanied by an apparently very popular Don't Dare Call It Jelly advertising campaign, which I don't remember at all until I looked up some of the commercials on YouTube. So I'm adding a link to one in the show notes. But this is actually, to me, a funny little bit of food culture. The idea is like there's a table of people eating brunch and they're all asking each other, please pass the polliners all fruit with these very sophisticated accents. And finally, the camera's on the last person at the table who a very clear Texan accent is like, y'all pass a jelly. <laughs> the rest of the crowd at the table are horrified. <laughs> the old lady faints. It was making this very clear distinction about this all fruit spread being made 100% with fruit as being the superior product. I'm adding a link in the show notes to a couple of the commercials. You can check them out. So finally, I have a funny, weird bit of jam history to share. I'm actually really excited about this. In March of 1951, the United States Supreme Court heard arguments about the case of, quote, 62 cases of jam v. United States, end quote. And this case is full of all kinds of semantic legal arguments and definitions that I found difficult to penetrate. But the gist of it is that 62 cases of jam labeled delicious brand imitation jam were produced in Colorado and shipped to New Mexico in 1949, where it was apparently seized by government agents. Now, the imitation jam jars of assorted flavors, including grape, strawberry, apricot, plum, peach, and blackberry, had the ratio of their contents of the jars were like 55% sugar, 
25% fruit, 20% water pectin solution. This violated federal jam regulations. I love the fact that I'm saying that. Requiring fruit jams to contain a higher proportion of fruit to sugar, hence the jars of imitation jam being labeled imitation jam. However, the jam cases were seized anyway because the product was, quote, served by hotel dining rooms, restaurants, and other public eating places to their patrons as fruit jam without disclosure that the containers from which the food was taken were labeled imitation jam, that retail grocery stores advertised such jams as fruit jams, and in response to telephone calls from housewives asking for the advertised jams, filled such orders with the product here involved, that ranches and logging camps served such jams to their employees as jam, and such employees consumed it, believing it to be fruit jam, and that such jams looked like and tasted like fruit jam, and that such jams are wholesome and have food value, end quote. This is actually a very valid, legit issue, the, this idea that food has to be what it is in order to be called that. And that was actually the basis of the suit and the result of this. A federal court trial in New Mexico originally found the cases to be properly identified as imitation and not mislabeled as real. But the Tenth Circuit Court, which overlooks the districts, reviewed the case. They disagreed and held, quote, whether a food purports to be or is represented to be a food for which a definition and a standard of identity has been prescribed by regulation is not to be determined solely from obscure disclosures on the label. If it is sold under a name of a food for which a definition and standard has been prescribed, if it looks and tastes like such a food, if it is bought, sold, and ordered as such a food, and if it is served to customers as such a food, then it purports to be and represented to be such a food. End quote. Now, to me, the whole thing has a little bit of a ring of the absurd about it, but it's actually really a significant legal precedent for food labeling because if it looks like, smells like, is treated like this product and it's not, that's a problem. And so this case, as I said, set major legal precedent for food labeling, for things being what it is and not imitation. If you're approximating something, you have to be incredibly clear about what it is and how it differs from the thing that it's purporting to be like. And there's a whole government department dedicated and acts and rules and laws dedicated to defending this principle. Jam was the reason why we defend that to this day. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, all this talk about preservation and what's imitation and what we view as acceptable purity brings up another avenue that I really would like to explore quickly. With the food prices and availability being what they are, we would be remiss not to mention the practice of food swaps. Now, these harken back to the early history of agriculture. If I had chickens and you had cows, I would propose a swap of my eggs for your milk. If my green thumb produced copious amounts of peppers and yours tomatoes, we could benefit by trading a portion of the crops to create matbucha or marinara for the upcoming winter. If my orchard had apples and yours had peaches, we could both enjoy these two reminders of late summer during the darkness of winter. Now, I know here in the state, food swaps were pretty popular in the early 2000s. There was even a food swap network that was co-founded by author Kate Payne. I even held a couple of food swaps when I lived in the Seattle area. And I'm not entirely sure why they fell out of fashion, but I think that's a great time now to revitalize that practice. 
And if you haven't heard of a food swap, it's simply an organized event where you can bring homemade preserves, baked goods, produce, cheese, wines, beers, syrups. The list is endless and you trade it with other participants. Now, there are two really important rules. And the first one is that there's no money exchanged and all products must be made or grown by the participants. It's pretty simple. Now, if you're the kind of person that likes some help when organizing events like this, our friend Emily Pastor has an ebook called Food Swap, and I'll include the link in our show notes. And as an added bonus, we're including a recipe for citrus curd and savory tomato jam from the book in the As We Eat journal. So make sure that you head over to get those two recipes and then organize your food swap and let us know how it goes. Oh, I love this idea because I really like receiving food gifts from people, from friends. I know this transcends the idea of a food gift. But that's a labor of love, love for the product, for the produce that you're using, love for the technique, for the process that it takes to do that, and then just love to share that with somebody else. We have a friend in California who for years made her own kumquat preserves. She could only do a limited number of batches a year based on how productive her tree was, but it was like this massive, beautiful thing when a new jar would come into the house for the summer because I love the citrus marmalade, the citrus jelly. So to me, it was the best thing. I wanted to offer some, with this idea of food swapping, some inspiration that I think would be fun for home cooks especially to pick up and adapt and change and do their own thing. There's nothing wrong, by the way, with a simple fruit, jelly, jam, preserve, marmalade, right? We love them. But one thing that's really kind of been interesting to watch is the innovation and creativity that's been going into blending flavors. And so some of the things that I've been reading about was the use of fermented or natural wines with fruit in order to create like a boozy jelly. That's something I hadn't really thought of before. I think it's fun, right? Like you can do some fun things with that. The other thing that I've been seeing a lot of and reading about is the combinations of more exotic fruits that might not be on average in your backyard garden. At least that's not average in mine. Exotic combinations like mango, hybrid plums, mixing those with spices like ginger, mint, and rhubarb. And then I guess that there's this sort of interest growing, at least in the United States, I'm sure elsewhere, moving away from that traditional sweet jam jelly or preserve towards variations like a sweet and spicy. So maybe stone fruit paired with a spicy honey or or sweet and smoky. So using a little bit of like natural smoke flavoring or something in that or a sweet and sour. And that one is I'm finding really appealing. So I'd like to challenge y'all out there to think of some creative things to, to do with your food swaps. I love that idea. And if you guys do, please let us know. Yes. I think that would be so fun to see what you've come up with. And if you do a food swap, make sure to also let us know that and how it went and yeah. what kind of things people brought. Yeah. Tag us on Instagram at As We Eat. Post in our Facebook community, Family Recipes, Traditions, and Food Lore community. Yeah. We briefly talked about episode 29, which is in our Kitchen Technology series. And if you want to learn more about Napoleon's reward and the impact, jump over to that episode and take a listen. And we also mentioned episode 45, which is the first episode of many more to come that we dive into cookbooks as a guard for cuisine and culture. The conversation surrounding this episode has been really thought-provoking. So take a listen and then head over to the Facebook group, as Kim mentioned, and let us know what your cookbook library says about you. 
Now, in two weeks, we'll be journeying into a dish often of no more than two ingredients that has sustained and inspired cultures through the century and has as many iterations as there are cuisines. From shaggy to flaky, from laminated to short, we'll be talking all about dough and the amazing things you can make with it. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com, follow us on Instagram at asweeat, and please join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, and it would make us super, super, super happy if you would share this episode with a friend and review and rate it on either Apple Podcast or Podchaser, and Spotify also has a review function. We would love five stars. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack, and we would be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, discovery explorations, and travel stops. There are three subscription tiers, including one, especially for brands, but we're sure you're going to find one that's perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our multi-platform storytelling project exploring how food connects, defines, and inspires.